Welcome to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad that you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Cody Schulz, the Orchard Youth Director. Good morning. I'm Cody Schulz. I'm the Youth Director here at Orchard, and it is a pleasure to be leading you guys this morning and speaking from God's Word. Pastor Matt asked me more than a couple weeks ago to bring this word this morning, and I have been praying about what the Lord would put on my heart today. And he led me to the point of wanting to ask you a question before I got started, and one that I want you to answer honestly in the quiet of your own heart. And that question is this, what do you put your hope in? I think many of us would like to say that we put our hope in God, that we find hope in Him. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's not always the case. And I'm saying that for myself as well. I think sometimes we have the desire or we have the inclination to put our hope in things that are less than God, to put our hope in our own ability, in our own capacity to achieve, you know, the American dream that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If we just have the right job, if we just work hard enough, if we just achieve a little bit more. Maybe we put our hope in the government. The government's going to save us. The government's going to know exactly what to do. They're going to provide everything we need. Maybe we put hope in something else like money or family, and think that when everything else falls away, these things are going to catch us. They're going to save us. But the truth is that when everything hits the fan, the only thing that is capable of standing firm when it comes to hope is God himself. And finding hope in anything less is going to become like shaky ground that's just going to roll away at some point. And today we're going to look at why that is. The author of Hebrews is going to make an argument in chapter 6 where he's going to point us towards the fact that God has been faithful to his promises from the beginning till now. And that in his promises he promised on the basis of his own character because in that there is nothing greater. And in so doing we can find a firm and solid hope secure in all of life's circumstances because the promises of God are eternal. They stand the test of time and the character and nature of God is unchanging. And so before we dive in, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak powerfully today from your word. I pray that you would bring it to rest on our hearts and on our minds, Lord, and that you would push us to be your people today, living out your calling in our lives. Lord, would you use this passage today to radically transform our understanding of who you are? In your name we pray, amen. So as I said today, Pastor Matt asked me to preach as part of our series, He is Greater Than All. And this series, which has come to us from the book of Hebrews, has been focused on proving how God and Jesus are greater than anything else in this world, greater than the angels, greater than the rulers, greater than anything. 
Nothing compares to God. And as we've been working our way through this series, we've looked at the ways in which God is greater. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Matt pointed out that in Christ, we have a greater promise. And then last week, we tackled the idea that we have a greater calling. Well, the way scripture is written, there's actually no verses, there's actually no chapters. It is the author writing a letter to the people, and it is one continuous train of thought for him. And so our passage today doesn't, while we're going to be focusing on chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, we have to remember where Matt left off last week in verse 12 in order to really understand where the author of Hebrews is starting today. So, If you would pick up with me in your Bibles, if you would flip over to Hebrews chapter 6, it'll be on the screen as well. We are going to start in verse 12, where the author writes, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited what was promised. And we're going to pause there. In this moment, in verse 12, the author directs our mind to think of those who have already inherited what was promised, right? And he's encouraging us, all right, who should we be thinking about? Who has inherited what was promised? Who exuded patience and faithfulness? And this is where we pick up in verse 13, where he is going to identify one particular man. Who is that man? Well, let's read in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, aha, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Now, pause there. Do we see what the author has done? Just prior to this, he has instructed you to imitate those who exuded faith and patience, and then he sets before you an example in Abraham. Now, let's talk for a minute about how Abraham exuded faith and patience, because I think that's important. The author specifically cites the promise that God made to Abraham to make him the father of a great nation. You know how old Abraham was when God made him that promise? He was 75. Abraham was 75 years old and God said, hey, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham said, I don't have a kid. How's that going to happen? Going forward, God led Abraham on all sorts of adventures and conquests. And Abraham was faithful to follow where God led him. He did occasionally have the conversation with God where he said, hey, so, but about that whole kid part, I'm kind of old. God said, don't worry, I got you. And when Abraham turned 100, him and his wife had their first son, Isaac. And after 25 years, Abraham finally saw the promise to be the father of a great nation fulfilled through this son. God took his time, and Abraham was patient. Because God says, my timing, not ours. But not 
three, four chapters later, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, you know that son I gave you that you waited 100 years for? I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Yeah. As a new father, I could only imagine that being laid upon me. But the next morning, Abraham wakes up, and him and Isaac saddle up everything they'll need for a sacrifice, and they start heading up the mountain. Oh, I can only imagine the pain when Isaac even looks at Abraham and asks, Dad, where's the sacrifice? We have everything else. Well, they get to the place, and they set up the altar, and Abraham ties Isaac down, and he pulls out the knife. And he's moments away from killing his own son when God finally stays his hand. And he replaces Isaac with a ram that was nearby, and that becomes the sacrifice. And we see the faithfulness of Abraham, even when it would be the last thing that he wanted, to follow the will of God. And we see God remain faithful to his promise that Abraham would become the father of a great nation. And so Abraham becomes this example of faithfulness and patience, waiting a long time for Isaac, the son that God promised, but also remaining faithful and holding not even his son before God. Wild. And so as we look at this. The author is doing two things in this moment. He is confirming what he said previously in verse 12 when he encourages us to imitate those who live by faith and patience like Abraham did, but he's also preparing us for another example that he is about to make, another argument that he is about to make in our passage today. And that argument is this, that God made a promise to Abraham that was fulfilled in the birth of his son Isaac that became the beginning of the line that would become a great nation. But what I think most of us forget is that there was a second part to the promise that God made to Abraham, this covenant. And that second part was that through this nation, God would bless all people. Okay? And if you look at the first chapter of Matthew... And you look at the genealogy of Jesus, what is the first name listed but Abraham himself? And so you see the promises of God, the covenant that God made with Abraham was fulfilled first when Abraham had his first son Isaac, but later completely fulfilled in the birth, life, and death of Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is setting up this example that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And that in the promises of God, we today can find hope. Because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God established a new covenant with us in which we get to become heirs to eternal life as we are told in the book of Romans. But it is interesting the way that the author of Hebrews lays this out. Because he talks about this promise that God made to Abraham. And he says he made him a promise on the nature of his own character. Right? That's what it says there in verse 14. He says, I will surely bless you. And he makes this promise and grounds it in his own nature and character. 
And he makes this promise and swears to it by an oath. In verse 16, the author of Hebrews identifies that when we swear to something, we being regular people, we swear by something that is greater than ourselves. And we do this so that we can solidify, hey, we're serious about what we are saying, right? We mean for you to understand that this is sure. And so we swear on something greater. What are things that we often see people swear on? We see people swear on the Bible. We see people swear on God, often when they shouldn't. And we do it so implicitly because we know that the concreteness of the oath is bolstered by rooting it in something more significant than ourselves. And we even do this to the highest levels of society. When the president is sworn into office, he puts his left hand on the Bible and he raises his right hand and recites the oath of office, knowing that he is making this oath before God. But when God makes a promise to his people, there is nothing greater for him to swear by. And so the greatest thing that he can make a promise on and ground it in is himself. Because he alone is greater than all. And so when he makes a promise, he himself is the assurance that the promise will be kept. And Abraham knew this. And he remained faithful to God, waiting patiently for all that God promised to come to pass. And it did. It just took a couple thousand years for it all to happen. And now in Jesus, we who come to him by faith can become heirs to eternal life. And God made this plan. And he has followed this plan to the letter. Because as we pick up in verse 17, he says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered us may be greatly encouraged. Verse 17, he says, he wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. He has not faltered. He has not wavered. Nothing has changed about his plan. From the very beginning, he has set in mind, hey, I know what I'm going to do and how I'm going to bless all people. We see that in the promise that he made to Abraham and how he ultimately fulfilled it in Jesus. And I'd argue that he knew this even from the garden, how he was going to reconcile all people to himself. The only thing is it wasn't going to happen in our time. It's going to happen in his. Because his timing is perfect. The same as his plan. And so in verse 18, God says he did that by two unchanging things in which it was impossible for God to lie. He could not lie when he made his promise. He could not lie when he swore to it by an oath based on his own character that these are the things he would do. So that we, you and I, those who have fled to hold on to the hope that we have in God, 
may be greatly encouraged. So I want to talk about that phrase, we who have fled, real quick. It is speaking to the people who have come to God by faith. And when we do that, we have fled something, left it behind us, no longer has it as part of our life. When we come to God by faith, we say, hey, I no longer desire to live in the patterns of the old self, but I desire something new, something different. And so we come to the Lord in faith, leaving behind the patterns of the world, the sin, the yuck, the anything that we might cling to other than God. And we say, God, I want you. And in him, we find hope. And that hope is encouragement to us, whatever this life might throw at us. Whatever happens, wherever the world throws at us, we find hope and security in the work and the promises of God. This week, we find ourselves on the precipice with Russia invading Ukraine and war breaking out. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the world around us. Leaders are responding with sanctions, and Russia, I was reading this morning, has responded by saying, hey, if you do anything to get involved, you're next. And that's a terrifying place to be as we sit here waiting for the next shoe to drop and wondering where we're headed. We hope for something to cling to in this world, something that is certain, something that can give us the light at the end of the tunnel, the hope that we so desperately need. And in that place, our own work ethic, our money, our whatever, is not going to stand up. The only thing that can provide hope in the face of such uncertainty is the certainty of God himself. And thus, he says in verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Firm and secure It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. And he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This hope that we have in God is rooted in his promises and the certainty of his character. That he has been faithful to us to fulfill the promises that he has made from the beginning, from the days of Abraham and Isaac till now. And this hope we have is like a firm anchor holding steady in the storms of life. In my college years, I spent a good amount of time on boats. I worked at this houseboat camp that took middle school and high school students out on the water for six days at a time. And I became somewhat familiar with anchors because we would anchor up at a location and we would be trusting our anchor to hold us steady as we hung out for five, six days. Well, on the Sacramento River Delta where we were, large boats would come by, sometimes big old yachts that would throw three, four foot wakes, and they would come smacking into the side of the houseboats, which were these 40 foot vessels, and we would just be rocking left and right. I mean, 
plates, dishes, stuff comes flying out of cabinets as cabinets come flying open, things go toppling over, the houseboat would become a mess. People would be falling over if you weren't seated, all this sort of stuff. But in all that stress and tugging on the anchor, the anchor did one thing. It became more stuck. It became more secure. And it needed something much larger to act upon it for it to become unstuck. And so the only time that we ever got nervous was when we looked at the main channel and there was a tanker coming by. (laughs) Tankers are these ginormous behemoths that are at least 50, if not more, times larger than our 40-foot houseboat. And this little 40-pound anchor that we had that held us so firmly against most things, suddenly we started to get a little nervous. See, when the tankers come by, they have this ability to suck in mass amounts of water, and they use that to propel themselves, to cool everything. And you would literally watch as the tides would go down as these tankers are coming by and everything's getting sucked towards them. And so that stress and that pull would sometimes be enough to undo your anchor. And what I learned is that anchors are incredibly powerful, incredibly strong tools for holding a boat until they are acted upon by something capable to dislodge them. Something big enough or large enough that is capable of ripping them out of the ground. So my question to you is this. If our hope that we find in God is compared with an anchor that is stuck firmly and securely in the ground holding us through the storms of life, What could possibly be stronger than a God who is greater than all things to tear that anchor out? And the answer is nothing. The hope we have in Jesus is the firmest anchor that one could have. The author goes on to explain to us that Jesus went before us. We're looking at verse 19 and 20 here in case you're curious. And it says, this hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. And now for this, you have to understand the layout of the temple back in Jesus' day. The temple was organized so that there was the place where the people could generally go, and then the inner sanctuary where only the high priest could go. And this inner sanctuary was separated from the outside area, by a curtain. And the idea was that in this inner sanctuary, that is where God resided. And regular people like you and I could not just go into his presence, but that we needed to have a mediator or a priest that could represent us before God. And so typically that priest, that high priest would take sacrifices, would take prayers, would take whatever, before God and lay it before him in the inner sanctuary on our behalf. Now, the gospel writers are careful to record that when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain tore in two, right? This is what it means when it says that Jesus went before us on our behalf. He tore that veil in two 
signifying that there was no longer any separation between us and God, but through the finished work of Jesus, we ourselves can have direct access to the Lord of hosts, the God more powerful and greater than all else. And the hope we have brings us directly into that presence, that place where Jesus went before us. And then it says that when Jesus made that way for us to come into that presence, he acted as our high priest. Not just acted, but he became the high priest in verse 20. In the order of Melchizedek. Now it's unique that he uses the term Melchizedek because Melchizedek is this strange character that shows up in the book of Genesis with the story of Abraham. Where Abraham with all of his conquests and all of his victories that the Lord had led him in, still gave a tenth of all that he had and recognized Melchizedek as an honored priest. And this mysterious character is recognized not just as a priest, but a priestly king. And in all of scripture, no other individual has held the both title of priest and king. There were those that attempted and God actually opposed that and stopped them. And so when it says that Jesus becomes a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, it's identifying Jesus's unique position in this line that no one else has been in to this point. And he's identifying, hey, Jesus is greater than all. He has gone before us. He's given us unfettered access to the God who is greater than all. And in so doing, we can see that the promises this God has made, that he has been faithful to fulfill as he has blessed all people through the work of his son, also can become the basis for the hope that we have in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your faithfulness endures forever. Lord, you are the one who we can find rest and hope in when the rest of the world falls apart. Lord, we pray that you would bring to mind the things that we might hold before you, the things that we cling to in this life, and that we would leave them behind and find our hope and faith in you alone. In your name we pray, amen.